0: invite you to turn with me in your Bibles now to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 17. Galatians chapter 2. We're going to be finishing up uh, chapter 2 today and then Harley's going to preach for us next Sunday and he'll start us into chapter 3. Uh, So let's begin by reading It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You can't get too far in talking about justification by grace alone, through faith alone, without certain questions uh, arising. We wonder, well, what about good works? What about holy living? Obviously, the Bible speaks of these things. Sin is sin after all. So where does this factor in? Where, does, where do good deeds fit when one is preaching justification completely apart from our works, that one can stand justified before God simply by faith, then it sounds like what you're saying when you say that is that a person can just do then whatever they want as long as they say they believe in Jesus. As long as they make some sort of mental acknowledgement of Him, then they're good to go and they just carry on doing whatever they want. This, to many, seems the logical conclusion. If we are forgiven, we're declared righteous, we're going to pass the judgment of God based on what Christ has done just by believing in him, not by doing anything ourselves or any act of ours. And isn't this logical to conclude that you're teaching permission to just go on living a sinful lifestyle? And if you are ever explaining the gospel to somebody, then that's the kind of question that comes to you, or maybe it's an accusation. I think it can come in either form. We can distinguish between a sincere question someone might have and some sort of accusation somebody might be giving. But if that's the kind of question or accusation coming back at you, then actually it could be a good sign that you are actually preaching or explaining the gospel, that you are actually Preaching grace. Martin Lloyd Jones, he uh, pastored in the 20th century in London, died in in 1981. Uh, In his commentary on the book of Romans, he said if our preaching does not expose us to the charge of antinomianism or lawlessness and to that misunderstanding, it is because we are not really preaching the gospel. He acknowledges there that if you are preaching God's free grace, you will have this question brought to you. You may even be accused of preaching that everyone can just go ahead and just carry on and sin. Uh, he notes how, well, as we'll see, the Apostle Paul faced that accusation, and every gospel preacher since has. Martin Luther, George Whitfield, and, and the list goes on. As we saw last week and as we've been discussing The gospel really is the good news that a sinner is justified by believing in Christ, who himself has done all the work that is necessary for a sinner to be saved, to be justified. He has paid our debt and he has secured righteousness that is imputed to our account by faith alone, apart from works. And our works never do add to this work of Christ. Paul himself, having preached this gospel and defended it, was accused of preaching that this therefore means that sinners can, and maybe even should, be unconcerned with holy living. They can just just carry on sinning. But this, of course, was not what Paul taught. This was a slanderous accusation against him. Uh, he addresses this in a number of places in his epistles. We read one of those places in Romans chapter 6. And he also addresses it, albeit sh- in a shorter way, here in our verses in Galatians 2. This accusation was very likely part of the argument of the Judaizers, They would argue that Paul's gospel doesn't deal with our sinful behavior and actions properly. In fact, they would say it grants us permission to go on sinning. So some measure then of of law keeping is in order. We have to uh, keep the law before you and assert that it is necessary to keep it in some measure in order to be justified. Because this is what will ensure that you don't go on sinning. This is what will ensure that you don't have permission for transgressions. So Paul's gospel just allows you to go on sinning, doesn't really deal with your actual sins. And so we have to maintain the law as part of this process by which we are justified. And that's what will keep you from going off into sin. And so Paul addresses this here. And as he does, he shows the proper relationship between grace and works. He shows the rightful place of holy living and how it fits with the gospel that is indeed entirely gracious. And so as we work through this, let's first begin here by noting that justification by faith alone does not give anyone a license to sin. Justification by faith alone does not give anyone a license to sin. Again, while this accusation or question might logically follow, the gospel of God's free grace does not, in fact, bring about freedom or permission to go on sinning. So knowing that this is part of the argument against the gospel, Paul writes in verse 17, "...but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ..." we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? And he answers, certainly not. So if we're holding to free and gracious justification in Christ, and then we are found to be a sinner, shall we conclude, as the Judaizers did, that we are turning Christ into a servant of sin? if the law doesn't serve as part of the grounds of our justification or as the instrument by which we are justified, then we can just you know, toss the law altogether. We can just throw in with those pagan neighbors and just engage in sin all we want. This is what the accusation is. Your gospel, the, the Judaizers would say, Your gospel says that Christ died so we can just continue in sin. This, therefore, makes Christ the servant of sin. Far from taking away sin, he actually establishes it. He actually permits it because you don't have to overcome it in order to be justified. Thus, Christ in this way is a servant to sin. This is a very common accusation against justification by faith alone. This was the accusation that the Roman Catholic Church threw back at the Protestants during the Reformation. They call justification by faith alone a legal fiction. You've maybe heard that language before. It's one that's not just, it's not just an accusation by uh, uh, Roman Catholics. You hear this today as well by those who don't like justification by faith alone it's a legal fiction that is you are declared righteous but it's a sham because you're not actually righteous in your person so another example of a legal fiction maybe help us understand this accusation it's like a couple who marries for immigration purposes for immigration papers they're maybe legally married but then if they have no intention To actually stay married and be, you know, live together and be a married couple. They're just doing it for immigration purposes. This is a legal fiction. It's a sham, really. They're technically married on paper, but they're not really married in any, beyond that, any real sense. It's a fiction. So that's the argument against justification by faith alone. You have this legal declaration by God that you are righteous, but really it's a fiction because you're not actually righteous in your person. Really, you're just making Christ in this way a servant to your sin, to say it's okay. Of course, Paul's response to this is certainly not. This is not at all what the gospel proclaims or says. Salvation by God's grace through faith does not mean that we should draw this kind of blasphemous conclusion. And this response he gives here, this certainly not, it's the same response that he gives in Romans chapter 6. So that there the question is asked by, uh, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So if, if, if God delights to show grace to sinners, then, and, and we, we don't have to overcome it ourselves, and we can be really filthy, rotten sinners, and then be justified by believing in Christ, well then, maybe we should just continue sinning a whole bunch God will have to forgive even more and he'll get even more glory for that. So let's just continue in sin that grace may abound. And his answer is by no means. That's the wrong conclusion. And that phrase by no means, it's the same answer that he gives here in Galatians 2. In Greek, at least, it's the exact same wording. I'm not sure why the ESV translates it by no means in one case and then certainly not in another. But it's the same answer. And I think the question is really driving at the same issue, ultimately. So if someone wants to slander the gospel, justification by faith alone, as if it is simply encouraging sin in people, or if someone wants to use God's grace as a cover-up for their own fleshly living and sinful behavior, then this is saying no. This is saying that is a misunderstanding, that is not the right, correct, logical conclusion that is not the Bible's teaching. Justification by faith alone does not give anyone a license to sin. Secondly, as we think about holy living in the Christian life, holy living does not arise from turning the covenant of grace into a covenant of works. Holy living does not arise from turning the covenant of grace into into a covenant of works. So here's the common response. We've already been, been going over it. But free grace s- sounds like permission to us. And so we must make salvation grounded upon, at least in some way, contingent upon the believer's activity. Right. This is the thing that will motivate faithfulness. This is what will motivate good works. We have to withhold some aspect of salvation, make it dependent upon something you will do. That is the thing that will keep Christians in line. But this is not the way. So after saying that a believer's sin does not actually make Christ the servant of sin, Paul says in verse 18, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now this seems a bit vague. What is he talking about? Rebuild what? Paul is speaking about the law here and its role in justification. Paul has thrown the law to the ground in this sense. Law-keeping is not part of the means by which we receive our righteous standing before God. And when it comes to the Mosaic Covenant specifically, now that Christ has come, it has been fulfilled and it has served its purpose. You remember, of course, the the curtain temple was torn in two when Christ died. Uh, The the Mosaic Covenant is no longer in force. It is no longer uh, binding. The death and resurrection of Christ brings about a new era in the history of redemption. It brings about the inauguration of the new covenant in his blood. But the Judaizers in Paul's day, they would not stand for this. They say that not only are the ceremonial laws of Moses, like circumcision and food laws, still in place, still continuing, but... The law must be kept in order for you to be saved. What Paul is saying here with this question and answer in verse 18 is that if, if he is to rebuild that structure, if he agrees to that argument that the law needs the law of Moses needs to be brought back in and the law then needs to be kept in order to be justified, if he builds that up, then that certainly would make him a transgressor. So he can't go back on his word, is what he's saying. He can't begin to now, pre- to now oh, I was wrong, and back up, and now begin to reestablish the law and preach that it uh, is necessary to be kept in order to be justified. That would certainly make him a transgressor. There's two problems here with this understanding that the Judaizers have. First, the old covenant, as I said, is now obsolete as a covenant. The book of Hebrews makes this clear, It teaches us it is gone. It was all pointing towards and shadows and types, the coming of Christ. Christ has now come and this falls away. So to now rebuild the Mosaic covenant would be wrong and sinful and backwards for for Paul. And secondly, the law was never put in place as a means by which man was to attain justification. And so the teaching from the Judaizers isn't even a correct view of the Old Covenant. It was never there as a means to try to attain justification by our works. So it shouldn't be resurrected. The ceremonial laws are done with and gone away. Paul can't bring that back. That's to go backwards. Moreover, it was never put in place in the first place in order to be justified. And this is something he will go on to make uh, even more clear in uh, chapter 3 of Galatians. We'll see it more even next week when he talks about uh, Abraham. At no point since the fall is any law, moral or ceremonial or other, put in place as a means of establishing our righteous standing before God. So in every way, Paul cannot go back to resurrecting the Mosaic Covenant and then demanding that as part of how one is justified. So the Judaizers are accusing Paul and his ilk of promoting sin they're making Christ the servant of sin with their doctrine of full and free justification by faith alone. And Paul is countering saying, no, that's not the case. In fact, if I were to go along with them, that would certainly prove me to be a transgressor. It's the other way around. It is sinful to go backwards now and not only put these ceremonial laws back in place, but then demand that law keeping plays an instrumental foundational role in justifying sinners. What that does is denies grace, denies the grace of the new covenant and makes the new covenant a legal one, a legalistic one. It makes it one in which, in which we must then work to earn its blessings. We must keep law to earn the reward. Paul is not having that in the covenant of grace that was promised in Genesis 3.15 with the promise of the seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent reverse the curse. This covenant of grace that is foreshadowed and promoted or promised throughout the Old Testament that was formally established by Christ when he came, establishing it in his blood in the covenant of grace, God saves by grace. He calls, he justifies, he imparts new life and so sanctifies, and he glorifies all as a gift of his grace. It is not received by working, but by believing. And this is what we said last time. Christ is the one who has done the work. He is the faithful Israel. He is the last Adam. He is the greater David. He is the only one who has faithfully and perfectly obeyed God. He is the one who has earned the wage. He has purchased, that language is here, that he has purchased with his life and his blood salvation. And this salvation is then dispensed to sinners freely and graciously to all who do not work hard for it like a wage, but rather believe God for it. In Romans chapter four, we have this distinction between working for a wage and receiving something as a gracious gift. In the context of justification, he talks about Abraham having been justified by faith that's prior to receiving circumcision even so how can you say circumcision justifies us in some way when abraham was justified before there even was circumcision And that we'll see next week in in galatians 3 as well but in romans 4 4 paul says now to the one who works his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due that's legalism that's legalistic That's working to receive a due. That's not a gift. When you sign a contract with your employer and they agree to pay you and you go to work and do the obligations given to you, and then at the end of all that, when you receive your paycheck, that's not a gracious gift. That's a due. That's a wage earned. And that is not how salvation works with God. Rather, Paul says in verse 5 of Romans 4, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Again, people get nervous about this. This is going to lead to lawlessness if you talk that way. If you would have people rest... Completely in what Christ has done and put no hope in themselves whatsoever, not in anything they do, they're just going to be lawless. They're going to go on sinning. And so the temptation again is to bring back the law, resurrect it, and make what is a covenant of grace into a legal one. We've got to have people working to some degree here, at least to some extent, in order to receive that reward. This is the thing that's going to keep people in line. This is what the Judaizers were doing. You have to keep the law. This will restrain you Gentiles. You Gentiles are utterly sinful. Pagans. You've got to then keep this law in order to be saved. This is the thing that Paul is adamantly denying here. He will not build this, turn this new covenant into a legal one, a law covenant, as it will be sin and it would overthrow grace. So when it comes to the question of holy living in the Christian life, the answer is not to blend law with gospel. It is not to try to add works as part of the means by which we are justified. It is not to turn the covenant of grace into a covenant of works of some kind. And people do this in different ways. For many, grace is simply your entrance into the Christian life. But then after that, all of the emphasis becomes on your doing, working. The gospel gets you in, but now you better get busy. Grace gets you in, but now you've got to stay in by your faithfulness. You and your covenant faithfulness becomes the focus. There's language out there of you're justified initially by grace through faith alone. That's true. But if you want to be finally saved, in the end, you're going to stand before God with some combination of your faith and your works. And that has more in common with Roman Catholicism than it does Protestantism. That is not gospel. That is not grace. Notice the thing that is, the Judaizers were were not teaching you have to keep everything absolutely perfectly. And so therefore Paul's like, whoa, that's too much. That's not grace. They they would affirm God's graciousness. They would affirm trusting in Christ. But they're just adding a few things to it. Really attainable things that you could do. And and Paul, even just in these little things being added, says you're destroying the grace of the gospel. So it is a big deal when even one small thing gets added to it. You're moving it out from a covenant that is gracious to one that is legal legal. In which we are working to earn a wage. So holy living does not arise from turning the covenant of grace into a covenant of works. We see throughout the Old Testament, we see that, that the law does not have that effect on people. That they just oh now they they, they they have the law held out before them and they all just really want to obey now. It has never promoted holiness. So let's get to where holy living does arise from. Holy living flows from a believer's new life in union with Christ. Holy living flows from a believer's new life in union with Christ. Verse 19, Paul says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Paul is speaking in the first person here to demonstrate how it is for all believers. The law is good. The law reveals God's holiness and his holy standard. And the law does promise blessing if one were to obey it. But it also promises curses for those who disobey it. And because all men and women are sinners, this means that the law simply ends up exposing us in our sin and leaving us condemned. It leaves us under a curse. The law, in Paul's case, he says, exposed his sinfulness and killed him. That's, what he, that's the language he uses in, in Romans chapter 7, verse 11. It killed him. That is, though it promises life and though it is good, it reveals sin to him and it left him condemned. And so he died to the law, he says here. That means he, he died to the law as a principle of life. He died to the law as a way of attaining a righteous standing before God. It was never going to happen. Justification cannot and will not come through the law because God's law demands absolute perfection. So he died to the law. The law revealed his sinfulness and killed him. It's not a means of establishing righteousness before God. But he didn't die to the law And just remain in misery. He didn't die to the law and just continue on sinning. He says he died to the law so that he might live to God. The result of all this was a living for God in a different way. One that is not simply a legalism trying to establish righteousness. But the end result was indeed living for God. And he will explain what he means by living for God in the following verse. Verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so, so here we are. Here's how it is that the gospel of free grace doesn't logically end in licentiousness, in just license to sin. Because salvation is a work of God, so that, like Paul, all who possess saving faith in Christ Jesus also receive other graces like our spiritual union with Christ in which we are united to him in his death. We we truly died with him to sin and are risen with him as well that we might walk in newness of life, that we might live to God. He also says here, believers receive Christ Jesus Himself, who dwells in us. He dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. Romans 8:6, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. So there's a lot going on when a person believes and is justified. What Paul is getting at is that a person saved by God through faith in Christ is truly made a new person, is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. The old man has been crucified with Christ and now the new man has been risen with Christ to walk in a new life of holiness and obedience to the Lord. Justification by faith alone is not a legal fiction because it is accompanied by new life in that same believer. There is a real spiritual but real union with Christ that takes place from which flows to us new life so this is where we come to the phrase that we've used lots Uh, Luther certainly used it, Calvin did many have that a sinner is justified by faith alone but that faith is never alone That is to say, there will be other graces that accompany faith. There is union with Christ. There is the grace of sanctification that will be present. There is regeneration that makes faith possible. There is new life. The sinner is not yet perfect in the flesh, but the believer is slowly being conformed by God into the image of Christ a work that God will bring to completion at the end. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved unto good works. Ephesians 2, 8-10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So as we think about salvation, we distinguish between different elements within the broader category of salvation. We can distinguish the different elements, but we don't completely separate and divorce them. So justification and sanctification, these are two different elements of salvation. We could add to that, there's adoption, uh, glorification. These are elements of salvation. We can distinguish between them, but we don't completely divorce them from one another. But it's helpful and necessary, I think, to make distinctions here. Justification. It is something that comes in an instant. It is not a process, but it happens when a sinner believes. And it is very much received apart from any work that we do. Sanctification, on the other hand, is a progressive matter, a process, by which we are formed into Christ's likeness. This, too, is God's work within us. It involves our working. Paul speaks of striving and straining forward toward greater holiness. He's going to call us even in uh, this very book of Galatians to this end. And yet even sanctification, when it occurs, is rightly said to be God's work within us. He is the one who works within us to will and to work for his good pleasure. He says in Philippians 2, if you recall that. And sanctification will come to those who are justified by faith alone because they are united to Christ. They are attached to the vine. They've died with him to sin and have been raised to walk in new life. To such people, the moral law of God is now written on the heart. It is not merely something outside of us, that is threatening us and damning us if we fail to measure up. It is written now on the heart of the believer that we might desire it, that we might know and recognize and understand it to be good. So Paul continues in verse 20: The life I now live in the flesh, which I think he just means in the physical body, while he still lives. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's focus is upon the Savior, the Son of God, who loved Paul and demonstrated that love for Paul by giving himself, dying in order to redeem Paul. This is, Paul lives his days in light of that. Fixed upon that. He didn't move on from that to say, now I need to keep the law in order to make sure I maintain this this leg up that I've been given by grace. He didn't think he needed to complete the work of God's grace or keep himself in God's good graces. Or now that God has gotten him into this covenant, all the focus becomes his own striving and working he belonged to Christ Jesus by God's grace. Jesus had performed everything necessary, all the work necessary to save Paul. And Paul was now a joyful slave to his Savior. He belonged to Christ Jesus. He'd been united to him, and he lived his days by faith. His motivation was not keep the law to earn something. Rather, it was the love of Christ for him that compelled and motivated Paul. This love of Christ that was evident in the fact that Christ gave himself for Paul. This is such a different motivation from a legal one. And so often, sincere believers fall back Into some sort of functional legalism. We struggle with our sin and we get discouraged and we get downcast and we begin to think we need to clean ourselves up to a certain degree and extent before we would lift our heads. Before I can really praise God or worship Him, I need to get this sorted out and cleaned up. We tell ourselves and we believe we are unworthy. We're not able to be joyful. We shouldn't even be joyful because we're so sinful. We've got to clean this up to be in fellowship with other believers first. And this is the law speaking to you. This is the law condemning you. It is true that we are unworthy. But this is precisely why we need the gospel of God's grace. We will never be worthy enough. On your best of days, you've never been worthy enough. Your faithfulness has never been perfect. It has never measured up. God accepts sinners not because we measure up, but because of his grace toward us. Because Christ measures up. And that is credited to our account by believing. This is how it is. We can get up in the morning and lift up our heads though we have sinned yet again. This is what makes the gospel good news. God saves by grace. Do you believe in Christ? Then He is your Justifying righteousness by which you stand before God and your recent sin that you feel the weight of does not disqualify you confess that to God it's in the light it's exposed and you remember Christ Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me His love is not dependent on your goodness. The law is not your pathway to establishing righteous standing before God, nor is it your pathway to paying Him back. We live our lives by faith in the Son of God, trusting that His work is sufficient for our salvation that his righteousness is our righteousness before God. This is what will motivate holy living and encourage you. The one who would callously say, well, that just breeds lawlessness, that person has never grasped the greatness of what Christ has done for them. They've never felt the terrors of God's law and their own failure to live up to it. And the holiness of God and his wrath for all those who violate his law. They've never known that. They've never grasped that his demand, his just and righteous demand as the creator of everyone and everything, is absolute moral perfection at all times. They've never grasped how far short of that they fall and the true guilt they have for their sin that it would warrant a just penalty of eternity in hell. And so they've never grasped and known the true love of God that is seen for them in the fact that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us when we have done nothing of our own. And he died not only for your sins of yesterday, but the sins you don't even know you're going to commit tomorrow as well. And the day after that, and the day after that. Christ's salvation does not just get us back to even, to where we're now back in the Garden of Eden, and we better not blow it again, or else we're going to be back under the curse of the law. God's, Christ's salvation brings us into glory ultimately, a gift of his grace. True holy living in the Christian life does not arise from brow beating with the law of God. We, we falsely call that humility. Well, I, you know, I'm sinful. I better just feel bad about this a lot longer. True holy living in the Christian life does not arise from brow beating with the law. It flows from our new life in Christ Jesus. The Christian life is a life of thankfulness. Of faith in the one who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Truly, grace has come to us in Christ. And as Paul says in Titus 2, 11, for the grace of God has appeared, giving us license to sin. No, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It is grace that trains us to renounce ungodliness. It is not withholding assurance of salvation that trains us towards godliness. It is not dangling the law before you with its threats that promotes holy living in the Christian life. It is God's grace to us ultimately in Christ that we are justified apart from any of these works we would do and the fact that an actual new life has been imparted to us. as we are united to Christ. Paul concludes this part. He says in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He says, I do not nullify or cancel out the grace of God. He's accusing the Judaizers of doing that very thing. That's what he's saying. These guys are the ones nullifying Because they're saying your righteousness before God does come through the law. But if that's the case, then Christ died for no purpose. Why is he here? Why would he die? If we can keep a, a law that would establish us righteous before God. By introducing the law as a pathway to righteousness before God, the Judaizers nullify grace. And this is what happens when we don't keep a distinction between law and gospel. Grace is overridden and it is ultimately thrown out. And again, it is not that the Judaizers had no no place for grace whatsoever. But even by bringing back certain aspects of the law, and making that, you know, the basis of one's justification, part of the basis of justification. In so doing, they had polluted grace such that it was no longer grace. Again, Paul is teaching truly that one is saved by God's grace alone through faith alone Paul's gospel which of course he has been belaboring throughout Galatians to say is actually God's gospel it upholds both the free grace of God and the law of God it promotes holy living in believers but doesn't make that holy living part of the grounds of our salvation They are instead the fruits of faith, the result of union with Christ. We recently, of course, went through the Sermon on the Mount, and in it we heard Jesus teach about true righteousness. He taught that God's moral law is a reflection of the very perfection of God. And this doesn't change, this never changes. But if someone wants to try to establish some measure of their righteousness before God by keeping the law, then the standard they're going to have to keep is perfection. And this is precisely why we need grace. And if you've received God's grace in Christ, that law that Jesus explains and expounds in the Sermon on the Mount It guides you now as to what pleases God. It guides you into what pleases your Savior. But you are not under its thunder and its cursing any longer. The second Adam has conquered. The curse has been overturned by him. And his saving benefits are graciously bestowed on all who believe. And so believe in him. Put no confidence in the flesh, in any of your works, but cast yourselves wholly on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. Confess your sinfulness, your unworthiness, and rest in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And believer, lift your head. Believe again the promise of God that you are forgiven in Christ. Stop trying to labor to impress God or to bring yourself to a position where maybe now God will be pleased with you. Maybe now you can worship him. Trust that God does save on account of Christ by faith alone. And may the love of God, that love of God that seems impossible, that he could give such a gift, may it compel you onward to faithfulness, to striving, to a desire and a love of the righteousness that pleases God. May it compel you to striving For that, but doing so as those who are full sons and daughters of God through faith. Those who are awaiting our inheritance, our blessed hope. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you praise. Not because we are worthy to praise you but we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have no righteousness of our own that would merit us a hearing before you. But you have called us to come boldly and confidently because Christ has indeed secured and accomplished redemption. Your word reminds us that he Currently, continues to intercede as our high priest, such that we can have confidence that though we are weak and stumble and we tremble, you will see us through to the end. Help us to see and to know that our hope of eternity is secure in Christ Jesus, that we would look away from all of our weakness and struggling and find joy and courage and strength in your love and in what Christ has done. Father, forgive us where we fall back into a legalistic approach with you. Father, I pray that you'd crush in us any sort of false humility that would keep us from just receiving the promises of your word that we are your children through faith. Father, we pray that you would renew us in joy, that we would not grow weary in our living by faith, in our pursuit of holiness, since we are not pursuing that to try to earn something before you. Father, we pray that you would do good work in our souls. We do lament that we are not more righteous in our persons. Father, but I pray that this would cause us to fall back all the more upon your mercy, that it would just highlight to us the greatness of your salvation and the greatness of what our Savior has done for us, who loved us and gave himself for us. Father, we pray that you would, again, just promote true holiness in our hearts. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us, your ongoing kindness to us in every way. Pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.